This is the East Traumacast. With your moderators, Ferrance Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello and welcome to another edition of the TraumaCast. I'm glad that you could join us today. Uh, ultrasound has been described as the stethoscope of the 21st century. With the rise and widespread adoption of FAST in trauma, some surgeons have become adept at incorporating this modality into the trauma evaluation. The next frontier is extending the utility of FAST and eFAST with evaluation of the pleural space, and more specifically using ultrasound to help guide the ongoing resuscitation of injured and critically ill patients not only in the trauma bay, but also in the OR and the ICU. My um, guests today have special interest uh, in incorporating ultrasound into resuscitation. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, first uh, Dr. Charity Evans. Charity, would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I am Charity Evans. I'm a trauma surgeon at the University of Nebraska Medical Center here in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, my interest in ultrasound is, is basically extended from my training. I think like many um, surgical residents and critical care fellows, we're introduced to it. Um, and, and now that I've been in practice, been in practice approximately five years, um, it, it just is a, a great way to expand what we're able to offer our patients and to assist with our, our clinical decision-making. Um, and I, I agree with what was said, that I do think it's the wave of the future and that it is um, eventually going to be the gold standard in several areas of what we do in critical care medicine. So it's fun to be on the, the front end of that. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Charity. And also joining us is uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Christie. Uh, Benji, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well? Hey, thanks, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to participate. Um, my name is Benji Christie. I'm a trauma critical care surgeon from Macon, Georgia at Madison Health, the Mercer University School of Medicine. I'm uh, the associate director for trauma there as well as the program director for surgery. I uh, was exposed to ultrasound in my uh, fellowship and had an outstanding mentor who is a former cardiologist and a CVICU intensivist and um, really sort of shaped an understanding of the opportunity that ultrasound could be uh, specifically in the FTIC and trauma bay, and uh, we use it, uh, uh, you know, regularly uh, on our service, and uh, our interests are uh, establishing a sense of learning code, uh, learning curve, and also, like, developing methods for ensuring uh, our residents and fellows can uh, exit our programs with uh, a background that allows them to be credentialed for this, as credentialing guidelines seem to be tightening around the country. Okay, great. I'd also like to recognize that uh, this trauma cast and uh, a future webinar have been generously sponsored by an educational grant from IMACOR, which is the maker of the HTEE probe uh, for intra uh, uh, or use in the ICU. And we'll be talking about that a little bit later, but uh, we'd like to acknowledge them and thank them for their generous donation. Um, let me start off and say, um, maybe, maybe Charity, let me ask you first, um, why don't you tell us about how you are currently using ultrasound in the trauma bay? Um, I think, you know, most of us are familiar using FAST, but specifically in somebody that has extra interest and extra uh, expertise, how do you actually use it and incorporate it into a trauma resuscitation? Sure, it's a great question. I, you know, I think FAST has um, made its way as, you know, a, a 
routine adjunct to our workup um, in, in the trauma bay, and we definitely do use it in that circumstance. The extended fast um, with the added lung views is something we use commonly um, as we are working up a patient that may have a pneumothorax, and obviously we have that concern for them and the need for a chest tube. I will say routinely we also use it for vascular access um, when appropriate um, if, if the ultrasound is available and um, it will aid in our placement of some of those vascular lines. Uh, we commonly use it to look at cardiac contraction and cardiac arrest, so that trauma patient that does come in code 99 with CPR in progress. <laughs> Um, knowing the, the statistics on a patient that um, comes in with no cardiac activity, it does play a role in um, how aggressive we are with the resuscitation and what options we have for the resuscitation of that patient. Uh, fortunately, at our institution, patients don't spend a whole lot of time in the trauma bay, so a lot of the um, studies that we would do in the ultras with ultrasound in the ICU, I don't find that we're doing it as much um, down in the trauma bay because they, like I said, they don't spend enough time down there to really look at fluid resuscitation or heart strain. Um, but I would say those would be our big ones, would be the FAST, E-FAST, um, vascular access, and then um, really limited echo views. Are you, uh, you say vascular access, do you mean uh, for central lines or you use them even for peripheral lines? I would say for the most part, um, we, we use them for central access. Occasionally we will use them for, for example, for like a radial art line or something, especially in a patient who's um, vasoconstricted and, and it's being difficult. Um, but for the most part, I would say central access. Okay. And Benji, how about you? Is that, is that pretty similar to how you guys are using it? Yeah, the uh, abdominal exam, without a doubt, is a standard for any of our tier one or tier two trauma patients. And um, we uh, also uh, rely on it for uh, visualization during uh, specifically central access uh, for uh, catheter placement. And uh, just like Carrie, you know, especially in the comorbid or, um, um, or the patient with pre-existing medical issues during an ongoing resuscitation effort in the trauma bay, we, we are using it more uh, to capture um, cardiac windows uh, to have a better understanding of sort of where the patient is on arrival and how they're responding um, as we initiate our resuscitation and make decisions about transfer and transport, uh, whether it be the operating vascular CT scanner, what have you. So. so you're actually, what are you basing those decisions on using your ultrasound? Well, a lot of times when, when they're, they're Poor responders or transient responders were specifically looking at their cardiac performance to ensure that they came in with uh, some baseline cardiac contractility, um, and, uh, and and to, if they were to have some pre-existing right-sided, you know, cardiomyopathy of any variety, specifically some diastolic dysfunction or right-sided enlargement, it may impact the the way we progress our resuscitation. Uh, would be one one thought. Okay. Wow. And if, and if they are responders, um, you know, we often can see that through, uh, you know, or have, a, have at least a sense of that through certainly our, uh, our pressure recordings, but also through, uh, you know, these data diameters and um, our cardiac performance, cardiac wall performance with the uh, addition of uh, resuscitation fluid, whether it be, you know, colloid or crystalloid. Seeing that seems to allow us the opportunity to make better decisions. So let me ask you both, and we'll start with you, Charity. Um, tell me your thoughts about routine versus selective use in the trauma bay. I know some people are advocates of every patient every time, and some people say that it's just going to unnecessarily uh, complicate maybe a stable patient. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Are you doing it on every single patient? 
It's an interesting question because I think um, at least at, at the academic centers, which UNMC is, uh, we really have a, a twofold mission. And obviously the first is to do what's right for the patient. And so obviously if it is indicated, we have a blunt trauma and unstable patient. We have, you know, possible injury to the cardiac box. Absolute indications we're going to pursue the FAST. Um, on cases that, um, you know, technically wouldn't fall under the protocol for FAST, it really becomes a decision for me, at least as an attending, um, as faculty, as, as a real-time decision that if performance of the FAST is going to delay something that actually is going to change my treatment. Um, so, for example, if it is, you know, our next step of going to the CT scanner or, you know, I've noticed sometimes that um, they'll hold off on additional x-rays because they are doing the FAST, um, then I struggle with that some because, again, we're here to um, – to do what's right for the patient. And at that moment, what's right for the patient is to, to continue our workup. The flip side of that is our educational mission. And the truth is, is that it's it's pretty well published that um, the accuracy, the sensitivity, the specificity of FAST only improves as the person does more. And so I think in those cases where it is an opportunity, then it's reasonable to, to go ahead and do the FAST so that the people that um, are routinely doing FAST are getting the experience that they need, um, specifically the, both the surgery and the ER residents. Um, so no, we don't, we don't FAST every patient that comes in. Um, I think a large number of them do get a FAST. If the FAST is indicated, then I will put in an order for it so that the, that the patient and the patient's insurance is billed for it. Whereas if it's not indicated, then I don't, um, because I know that it is being done for educational purposes only. Benji, how about you? Are you guys routine or selective in your center? Um, I, I, I uh, saw uh, Charity's comments. Those are very well said. Uh, and quite frankly, mirror those uh, practice habits. Um, you know, we are here to teach, and um, and uh, we do, you know, we pretty much do any level one or two activation gets a fast, unless for whatever reason it was some isolated extremity injury that's in a non-blood penetrating injury. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, record images or, um, you know, bill for those at the end of the uh, – turn in our charting. But um, we, 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 we fast um, pretty much all blunt level one and level two activations and um, – and uh, I agree with uh, Charity about, you know, avoidance of an unnecessary path, avoiding the, uh, the delay of a, of a transfer to, you know, the patient's next echelon of care. We don't, you know, we don't advocate for that. But, but we are we're pretty aggressive in, in, in showing our uh, residents and fellows and, uh, that, you know, get, get hands-on. And, um, and we may not deal with everyone, but, um, but it's indicated we certainly, we certainly do it. And that kind of that kind of touches on my next question too. Is that um, you know one of the I think the centers where I've seen it where it's routinely incorporated, there is somebody besides the person who's doing the primary and secondary survey or being the team leader mm -hmm. who does it. So in your centers, uh, and we'll start with you, Benji. Who's actually performing these ultrasounds? Because that that could also affect whether or not there is a delay, and it also, as Charity's sort of already mentioned, it affects the sensitivity and specificity. So. How do you how do you who does it in your center and how do you make sure that they're qualified? Well, our chief resident effectively runs the trauma code and we have a mid level resident uh who is anywhere from a three to two um who usually is performing the fast. Now there's an attending uh president of every code who oversees or supervises the acquisition of images. Um so while someone may be, you know, 
working the probe and, you know, adjusting the game. There's an attending who is ensuring that they're, you know, doing their proper way and, and, and taking their time to get satisfactory, uh, you know, a, a sweep through all, all the appropriate positions to ensure that it's as accurate a game as possible. So a hand may be, the exam may be delivered by one of the residents, uh, but uh, it's uh, supervised directly by one of the attendants. Okay. And and have you noticed there's a there's a point where you're you're doing less hands on and more just uh you know, confirming that that is a good window or and, and do you have any sense about how long that takes the average trainee to get facile with it? Uh, well, you know, we're trying to pin that number down actually now. Um uh what's the learning curve? Um you know, our, it goes back to the more you do, the uh, the better you get at it. And um, and um, I, I feel like most of our PGY3s are facile at, you know, uh, getting proper images and, uh, and uh, catching, you know, the uh, all the cul-de-sacs the proper way, taking the time to ensure that they uh, sweep with absolute certainty. Uh, the younger guys are trying to just, you know, um, put it in the right place find the kidney, find the spleen, there it is, but maybe not necessarily performing the, the you know, the most thorough exam. And that's where the attending then steps in to, you know, sort of, you know, show them the technique to to uh, to adjust their film, to adjust their field, to slowly sweep through, to check posterior, anterior, superior, inferior. And, uh, and that's, you know, again, a long way around answering your question. It's a hard number to, to it'd be, we'd be, I'd be guessing right now on how many fast it takes to the, the young resident to, uh, have become facile. I'm not, I'm not certain of that number in our institution, but uh, I know our PGY3s are pretty reliable. Uh, Charity, what are your thoughts? What Who does it in your center? So currently in our center, it usually is an upper-level ER resident, and the ER attending um, is watching over the shoulder, both of the views. I would say, in my experience, um, the learner tends to do better with obtaining the view than interpreting the view. Um, so that they, they do learn where the probe goes, and, and but they're not always sure what they're looking at. Um, and so I think as they see more injuries, so for example, we had a recent young lady who came in with a pretty significant pelvic injury. And so the pelvic views around the bladder were really interesting because most of it was retroperitoneal. She did have some free fluid, but their interpretation of that um, was not that because they don't, you know, having not seen that image as often. So I think... Um, as Benji said, we, the, the, the faculty presence is very important because it, it really comes down to the interpretation of what they're seeing, obtaining the image and the interpretation. Interesting, of the places that I've been to, I did um, all of my training at a different location. One place we went to, a certified ultrasound tech did every single fast. And so our confidence <laughs> in their um, ability to gain an image was actually pretty high because we knew that this was their only job. And so it just was a different approach to um, how to to do fast in this in this circumstance. Um, here, like I said, the ER residents probably do a majority of them, which um, I think is in some ways not great for the surgery residents because I think many of them will find themselves at an institution where it will be them. Um, and that that time to get that education and to be under the umbrella of people who can protect you is now. And so I, you know, I try to encourage them to say, you know, I, I realize that here this is the role, but it's very easy for you to step in or to repeat the fast or, you know, in the circumstances where fast is is maybe indicated, maybe not, that these are the patients that you should pursue because um, it's not only important for credentialing, but it's also important for learning. 
So, uh, Sherry, I have a follow-up question to that because in my travels and my training in different places I've worked, it, it seems to me that um, it, in many cases the emergency medicine residencies have done a, a, a better job incorporating ultrasound training into their training programs than uh, many surgery programs. And it sounds like maybe that's kind of what's uh, – what I'm hearing also from you. Do you think uh, the surgeons are, are we, have we fallen behind a little bit? Do we need to kind of rethink how we're incorporating ultrasound into surgical training overall? I, you know, sort of, <laughs> sort of, you know, I don't want to step on any toes or to, to make a, a generalized statement about what is going on. I have been at several institutions where, yes, I do believe that, um, that perhaps we are, that I think that, um, that ERCs ultrasound is very much so a part of their daily practice, whereas I feel like in surgery there's um, a number of areas of surgery, several silos that don't use ultrasound very often. Um, and so I, it seems to me that um, that yeah, that we could. I I know that there are several ER programs that they do. They really push it. They have ultrasound. You know, it's a, a fellowship off of off of right. ER. And so that approach is going to push people in that direction to say, you know, and I've seen some of them that their entire month, their entire rotation will be only to walk around the ER and do ultrasound exams. And so it really does bring up an issue because we've seen it. So take trauma, put that aside. We've also seen it in our gallbladders. And so, you know, we'll get a call on a patient who has an acute cholecystitis. I'll pull up the chart. There's no ultrasound. I'm like, well, how you know, where are you getting this diagnosis? Oh, we ultrasound the patient. And, and so it brings up an interesting dilemma in terms of how we um, how that work is divided. But yes, I, I think that, that we, you know, as surgeons and as surgical residents, that we we should push this technology because, like I said at the beginning, I think it is a part of our future. Now, now Benji, it sounds like in your shop, you guys are using it for a lot of stuff with surgical residents. So maybe you're the flip side. Maybe maybe you guys have incorporated it more. And I'm interested to hear how you actually go about that. How do you how do you uh, accomplish that? Well, we, we don't have an ER residency is one way. Um, and <laughs> but I, agree, I, I agree with your assessment. Is, uh, the ER physicians, the younger ones that are uh, that have joined this large group that uh, staffs our ER, um, they are very aggressive and they seem to be very confident in their, their skill set um, with ultrasound. Um, but, but we don't have an ER residency, so we don't have to share that. So we don't cross-pollinate, you know, um, opportunities with anybody really in the tra our trauma patients. So. Um, we sort of stand alone in the hospital as it relates to our trauma and critical care service. And, um, and because of that, the opportunity to, to do as much or as little with ultrasound, you know, the residents, um, they can gauge that. But we, we, we push it. Um, it was pushed when I was a resident, uh, and, you know, through one of my mentors, and we all, um, are believers in it as a faculty. And, um, you know, we had, Simulation experiences, we have standardized patient experiences, um, and we, we try to get them, you know, looks uh, that are uh, practice-based as well as, you know, in the, in the, acute, the, the acute care setting and the trauma bay itself. But we don't have to share, I guess, is no way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, so do you, do you, Benji, do you, have a, do you have a specific ultrasound course that you put people through? It, it sounds like maybe you have some curriculum already or something. We do have a, a, a rough curriculum that uh, it's sort of born out of our uh, simulation lab. Um, we early in the residence experience, the PGY one year. In fact, they start working with it during their orientation week. As a matter of fact, uh, you know they learn you know technique and uh, 
you know, um, how to set up a line, practice a line. We have, you know, these sort of milestones that we ask them to sort of, you know, begin participating with. And, and ultrasound is one of them. Um, and so obtaining the views for the fast is, is the, it's the very, it's the thing, it's sort of the rudimentary element of, the, of, the, of the, their first exposure. Um, they, uh, we, uh, once we're comfortable, you know, there's a, once everybody's had several rotations through this faster than the sim lab, um, we arrange for some standardized patients to uh, to come and uh, participate, and, and they're um, through the once or twice or through the Mercy University School of Medicine, and other times they're actually a patient who's like on PD, you know, <laughs> and uh, they're paired down the hospital. They just you know don't drain right. in the morning, and we let the residents sort of find the fluid. You know, it's not hard, but just to see that um, because it won't be long before they'll be rotating through the trauma team and they'd be asked to you know perform the fast you know, during a serious code. Um, and that, that sort of uh, uh, is where the, the, the curriculum, you know, starts. Now, we've had some residents who obviously demonstrated the deficiency in performing the exam or understanding it, and they get more um, sort of one-on-one time with the supervising attending. And it goes back to the sim lab and sort of rehearses some of the, 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 the same milestones um, about image acquisition and understanding the non-biology of the machine and, um, going back to, you know, identifying anatomy. Um, but, uh, but it's, uh, that's the, the thrust of our, you know, uh, curriculum. And then we supervise them how they do it in, in, in real life. And, uh, okay. you know, have, have deep briefings when it's done. So. Uh, Charity, same. Do you guys put your residents through an ult- formal ultrasound course or is it all just hands on um, the job training? There, no, there are there are days of resident education that are dedicated both to echo and to ultrasound. Um, so I would say there's probably a, a larger focus on vascular access and the use of ultrasound there. Um, but there is um, a, a short course, so you know, a several hour course that is on fast and um, some use of echo. I would say it's more introductory than it is, um, you know, teaching some some hard techniques. Yeah. Um, Charity, what about credentialing for yourself? Are you credentialed in your hospital to to do these, capture the images, bill for these images? And if so, how did you go about getting that credentialing? I am not currently. No, I'm not. But when when I look at our credentialing here at, at UNMC, um, ECHO is considered a non-core privilege, so it isn't bundled into being a trauma surgeon or a critical care specialist. Um, and that qualification does require formal training either during fellowship and documentation of that or a post-fellowship course and documentation of completion of five procedures with somebody who does possess that privilege. And I haven't taken that route. I Unfortunately, and, and this is a, a call out to those who are in training, um, to really document what it is that they're learning. And, you know, I know that we have case logs, so on and so forth, but um, I think at least for myself that I, I – chopped it up to part of the job, so it wasn't something that I I set out to say, look, I did an ultrasound today, I did a fast exam today, this is what it looked like. Um, so we have to, to be able to show that training during fellowship or completion of a course, um, which I have not done yet, and then, like I said, to be observed for a period of time, and then in order to maintain that privilege, there has to be documentation of at least 10 procedures per year. Um, so while we do use it, I don't bill for it, but we will use it as a part of our decision making. Right, Benji, are you? Do you have uh, privileges like Charity's talking about? 
Yeah, um, I, I would imagine every hospital and credentialing committee is sort of built differently. Um, you know, the abdominal ultrasound, uh, the privilege uh, in our core credentialing packet uh, is, is part of our, our trauma surgery, our critical care, um, uh, you know, credentialing overview. Um, nobody, uh, and I've been around this institution now for a reasonable amount of time, uh, seems to, they've never seemed to set off any alarms uh, with any of the, uh, uh, the critics of uh, those applying for credentialing. Now, the, uh, when we started doing transthoracic echo uh, and HCE, that did um, initiate some debate. Um, now, much like Charity was describing, and I may, I may alluded to earlier, you know, one of our um, uh, sort of stalwarts in, uh, in our hospital from an education perspective was a former cardiologist and uh, intensivist, uh, and he ran the CBICU. He was very visionary in uh, his beliefs as it relates to ultrasound being something that could extend beyond just, you know, mapping out, like, you know, uh, aortic leaflets and size and, and functionality. And uh, he pushed it uh, on uh, all of our fellows, and, uh, and I was one of his uh, fellows. And when it came time to apply for, you know, formal credentialing uh, as a staff position, you know, this was something I, I specifically asked for. And uh, he wrote a letter uh, authenticating uh, the skill set that I had acquired and the mentorship that he had provided. Now, I'm not going to take a formal PEE probe and drop it down anybody in the hospital, but I have sort of, I guess the word would be limited uh, PEE privileges for the sake of human and monitoring. And the same thing for transthoracic echo. And that's my experience is that I, I think that FAST um, and vascular access are bundled into those, you know, into our, our regular privileges of both trauma and, and critical care. I think where at least what I've noticed in, in talking to my colleagues is that it's uh, the echo portion um, that seems to be a little more protected as a, as a non-core privilege. Right. Well, I guess that makes sense. Um, I can see how there would be people who have objections to sort of taking that uh, away from them if it's part of their traditional practice. Mm -hmm. um, well, one more question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Benji. Well, I was just going to add as a credentialing, you know, um, that that when, when when this came up, you know, we had to really sort of describe, you know, what we were doing and what the interests were. You know, the interest was doing a, a you know, transthoracic echo in the ICU at 2 o'clock in the morning to identify do we need more volume or have we are we overloaded or do we need to start pressors? And, you know, when we put it to, I guess it's a cardiology influence, that, hey, we can do this or you can come in and do this. <laughs> um, or, you know, your echo tech or however you want to work it uh, can do this. You know, they really seem to understand that this was, you know, for a specific uh, uh, indication and had specific criteria around which it would be used. Now, we're not going to be doing a, you know, an anatomic exam to tell somebody it's time to get the valve done, but um, but uh, once once they understood that this was really more about uh, hemodynamic monitoring and, and uh, resuscitation goals, um, they everybody seemed to be, we haven't had any problems since then. Um, so, we credential several new faculty. In. Well, let's uh, let's go there then. Let's uh, let's move on from the trauma bay and let's talk about ongoing resuscitation or ongoing management of critical care uh, patients. You you both kind of touched on it. Maybe uh, maybe first, Charity, I'll have you talk about how you use ultrasound in the ICU, mm -hmm. and then I'll get your thoughts as well, uh, Benji. And I think it dovetails on what Benji just said: is is our use of ultrasound in the ICU? It really is point of care. Um, I don't. I, I can't really honestly remember the last time I watched, you know, a critical care specialist do a full 
as you said, like anatomical ultrasound or, excuse me, echo, um, looking at, you know, to the degree that it would if I ordered a formal echo um, in, in the way that those are read by cardiology. So our use of it mostly is to look at fluid resuscitation, um, mainly looking at the IVC collapsibility and the respiratory variation to give us an idea, um, especially when we're having issues with, let's say, low urine output or, you know, low blood pressures, are we actually volume overloaded and we fell off the startling curve or is this a patient that has been under resuscitated helps to push us in one direction or the other. We will look at um, just in, in general the contraction of the heart and how well the heart is tolerating um, the stress of what the you know person is going through in the ICU. Um, cardiac output, I, I, while I have done it mostly with somebody else um, because it's not something I'm as comfortable with the machine and, and obtaining those views and, and calculating cardiac output, output but. Um, do call on my colleagues who do. We have one colleague here um, at UNMC that is actually boarded in the ECHO, um, actually went through all of the training, for example, that a cardiac anesthesiologist would um, and took the board and, and passed it. And so we'll often bring him to, to bedside to, to help us with some of the um, other readings. Um, also right heart strain. So when we have a question of a large PE, um, we will look at that if the person's not stable to get other um, imaging done. And then as we mentioned, vascular access and, and the use of it in codes to see if the heart is um, contracting and what, you know, what sort of contraction is occurring. So I'd say those were the big categories. Okay. Benji, how about you? Yeah, for, for CTE, that's exactly the, the same approach, the philosophy we have, the same goals we have with the technique. Um, and, uh, and, um, we, you know, investor access, uh, and, uh, I would say probably less like, you know, um, assessment for like hemothorces, pulmonary, you know, uh, pulmonary fusion accumulation, but, uh, that's another one that we may, you know, use it to sort of help us with and someone who's, too unfit for a transport or, you know, too respiratory sensitive to, you know, be positioned too much, but to get an, uh, you know, x-ray or an x-ray that's challenging to read, we definitely use it uh, to assess for, like, fluid accumulation in either hemothorces. Okay. Um, you've mentioned the HTEE uh, probe. It sounds like you use it. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how you use it and, and what that does, uh, what that adds to your practice? Yeah, so um, it's a transesophageal electrocardiography is performed with, uh, with the, the probe diameter. It's like 17 French, uh, semi-flexible to rigid at the tip, um, and uh, it allows to uh, – it, it, once inserted into the esophagus, it's allowed to be left in dwelling for up to 72 hours and provides the, the uh, clinician the opportunity to um, basically follow uh, cardiac performance on a beat-to-beat -beat basis, uh, and not just follow the performance, but the response to therapeutic maneuvers. And um, we uh, we use them a really a pretty fair amount in our ICU. So um, we've been happy with the, the technique and the, the results we've been able to, we feel like we've been able to achieve. So uh, my question is for both of you. Maybe start with you, Benji. Is um, with your use of ultrasound, um, are you guys still using Swan-GAN catheters, or, or has, has this allowed you to basically kind of get rid of those? Uh, I know that most ICUs are, are not using very many of them, uh, except there are a lot of uh, places that still have a lot of cardiac patients, uh, cardiac surgery patients that, that still have them. Tell, tell me what you think about 
ultrasound possibly being a replacement for a swan? I haven't put a swan in in years at this point. Um, uh, I still see them. Uh, they come from the uh, OR, and like you just said, a cardiac patient or, you know, a complex, you know, aneurysm, some kind of open aneurysm, vascular patient. Anesthesia still uses them uh, to a reasonable degree, or maybe it's, you know, surgeon preference for intra-op, you know, uh, feedback. But um, I, I personally haven't floated a swan in several years, maybe three, three or more probably. Um, but that, the only way I see them is if they come out of the, the, the operating room and, you know, we, we use the information. But um, I – in our patient population, we are we are on the go. Charity, a similar situation. So I think I placed one in fellowship and probably one in the five years since then. And both of them were in a patient with severe cardiac dysfunction um, that we felt like we didn't have enough other parameters to guide our resuscitation or how well the patient was doing. Um, it was interesting because, um, similar to as we've talked about the training for ultrasound, it was a similar experience that I don't think both the residents or the nurses knew what to do with it. Um, and I think part of the success of the SWAN is having people that um, can actually use it and, and to use the numbers appropriately and to obtain the information that you need. Um, so I, I think um, <laughs> it seems to be somewhat of a lost a loss art um, that, um, yeah, I would say that it, it appears that both echo and ultrasound are, are going to replace that. Yeah. And yeah, even well, in our cardiac population, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking, um, you know, even our cardiac population uh, where, you know, uh, whether it be an interventional um, or EP cardiologist, um, you know, they're I'm just anecdotally. I know they're they're using them less as well. So they they literally just almost seem to come from the operating room for you know some type of you know post cardiac procedure or a big aneurysm where you know it was going to be a, a challenging you know intraop management strategy for anesthesia. And overall, like I, I would say, as an institution, our volume I don't have numbers for it, but anecdotally, I would say it's it's you know it's it's a rarer thing to see now. And then dovetailing on what Cherry said, nobody, you know, you have to find a special nurse that knows how to, uh, you know, shoot profile and and uh, and, uh, and uh, help help provide the, the maintenance of the, the swan, you know, safely. So. Yeah, it's it's just kind of funny. I remember during my residency, at least, there was still the days of there was ice ice water in every room, right? Because they were doing the ice water injection to check the cardiac output. So it's just it's crazy, even in you know, it's not like I'm an old gray-haired kind of guy, but uh, but even in that short of time, the, the practice has really dramatically changed. As um, in, like we were saying for the residents, too, I remember, you know, having a huge spreadsheet where you're – because really the information, how it changes over time, gave us more information right. than anything else. And so with this patient, we're, you know, trying to describe this process of, okay, let's look at these numbers, and every hour they're looking at me like, you do what? <laughs> like, we're going to chart this over time. We're going to watch how this changes. This is how we're getting our information. So it really was just a, yeah, a lesson in frustration. Yeah. But Are either of you using uh, NICOM, and, and how does that kind of interplay with your ultrasound use? We are I'm not, not using no, neither one. Okay. All right. Um, Benji, for the HTEE probe, who places that probe? And can you can you kind of walk us through that a little bit? Um, you know, this isn't meant to be a instructional uh, podcast. Please, nobody listening, go and try to place it based on just listening to this one podcast. In fact, um, we are 
uh, going to, in the near future, hopefully in the next month or so, have a live webinar uh, specifically about ultrasound, but also about the, the ins and outs of how to use the HTE probe, how to interpret the images and, and other ultrasound use uh, that I hope uh, those listening will uh, sign up for and, and, and come participate with. So uh, watch for watch for that to be advertised. But um, so anyway, Benji, back to my question to you: How do you how do you place it? Who places it? And what are sort of the the pearls that you can share with us about that? It's, it's effectively like placing an OG tube, um, and uh, and honestly, that can be the most frustrating part of using it is just getting the thing down. Uh, it's, again, it's, it's flexible at the tip. It's semi-rigid the, the further up the uh, probe you get. But um, once you get to base the esophagus, you just advance it uh, into the mid-portion of the esophagus to gather your views. Um, it does take a little time to, 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 uh, to, to get that sense of tactile feedback, um, uh, meaning where your probe is positioned appropriately and you just have to slowly advance, slowly advance. Um, and uh, but. And it can it can be hard no matter how many probes you put in because you can you know bump into the, the pre-existing OG or NG tube and it can just make it make it tough to get it down. But it's it's uh, because it is flexible that's that's why it's so difficult. Um, but um, once you get it in, uh, all you do is advance it to you know the mid portion of the esophagus and then you know confirm your uh, cardiac you know just that you see a heart and then start your exam. Um, I put them in. The attendings put them in. Um, I will say that some of our ICU residents and fellows are pretty good at putting them in. Um, it, it, it's another one of those uh, practice uh, uh, concepts. The more you do, the easier it gets. Um, the more confident you get with uh, just finding a track back in the hypopharynx to get over the esophagus to just drop, drop it right in. And, and, you know, the younger ones are a little less aggressive. The, 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 the more senior and middle-level residents are a little more aggressive. But, uh, the more they do, the better they get at it. So if they can get it in fine, if they can, I'll come down and put it in myself, and then it doesn't take that long. Is it uh, easier or harder than, like, say, doing, like, an EGD for a PEG or something like that? Um, it's probably – it's safer, um, I would think. Um, you know, it's, it's probably a little bit more difficult because it is sort of a blind pass, you know, and um, yeah. the tip is, is very flexible. So if you're not quite lined up just right, you may bump off. Some of the, you know, the, the tissue in the hypopharynx, the upper esophageal sphincter may not want to let you buy, uh, and it's not rigid enough to, to, to sort of force that that reflex uh, like a, an OG or, or you know an NG tube would. So um, I would say, you know, and it, it, it's probably a little more difficult than an EGD, only because it's just it's flexible. But um, again, once once you felt it pass a couple of times well and easily. Uh, the tactile feedback is it's easier. That, that recall is immediate, and you'll, you'll know like this is working, this is not working, this is you know. And and sometimes it just takes a little bit of patience. Just wait, just wait, you know, just wait, and then eventually the esophagus will receive it, and uh, and then off and running. Okay. Um, okay. So one, I guess uh, maybe one final question for both of you before we wrap up. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about um, uh, PI. So one of the concepts that, that that has been talked about that I've heard talk about is, you know, should we, if we capture these images, should we? I mean, should we capture all these images? Should we store them? And then should we be using them uh, for PI? Should we, you know, be checking to say, oh, because a lot of times we kind of take people's word for it, right? The fast is negative, or the ultrasound showed this, but we have no way of sort of verifying that. And I'd like to hear what your thoughts are about. Um, the necessity or maybe even the legal obligation 
not even to mention sort of the ethical obligation to capture these images and to and to use them for performance improvement. And maybe Charity, maybe if you wouldn't mind just sharing your thoughts about that first. We do. We have a subset of our PI that looks only at fast exams and compares um, the fast exam to a CT if a CT was done. Um, or just following that patient to see if there were any missed um, injuries or delayed diagnosis um, at all related to the FAST exam or what the FAST would or would not have shown us. And it, it's a work in progress because, um, as mentioned, if those images aren't stored, um, then it's hard to go back and say this is what you missed. And so we've we've had um, you know some lengthy conversations with the ER and with radiology of what to do with those images and how those images where they would go and um, how the images would be used, who would read them, would they be overread, um, all of those questions. So I would say at this point it is a work in progress, but um, I, I agree with what you said that I do think it should be a part of the PI process because we are making real time and sometimes life threatening decisions um, based on what it is that we think the FAST showed us. And so, yes, we are. We're working it into our PR process. Benji? We do the same thing. Um, the, uh, especially when there's a discrepancy in, like, what a CT scan showed and what a FAST was reported to have shown, um, for education purposes, those images, the efforts that uh, sort of acquired those runs off of our device, you know, our, our PI coordinator is, you know, pretty talented at making things happen, and she can – um, find these images, you know, create little loops and uh, have them packaged up for our, our big kind of uh, peer reviews or trauma uh, conference. And, um, and, uh, and that's, it's, it's, it's been nothing but well received. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great adjunct to uh, education and, and technique and skill development. Um, you know, the idea of uh, having a repository for these images for the sake of uh, linking them to the chart. Um, you know, we're debating this very thing currently. You know, there are some platforms out there that um, can um, sort of integrate into your EMR and much like a pack, you know, be like an ultrasound file for a given patient. But um, we haven't, you know, it's expensive, and we haven't really, you know, committed to that yet. But I do think uh, – and there are other options uh, that, you know, that are basically file um, – um, uh, file repositories that, you know, for education purposes where you, you can rent some space and it's good for like six months and you got to, you know, re-rent it or you're going to lose like sort of 70, you know, gigabytes or whatever. Um, and we're looking at these things now, but, you know, to be honest with you, um, I can't say we're super comfortable with uh, having images in the dedicated dedicated repository in our EMR right now. I don't think, you know, I'm not sure we're, we have a platform to do that well with. And, and there are some, you know, Things to consider. You know, that becomes part of the formal medical record, and and um, the accuracy of the images, and uh, the decision that was made off of it. You know, like, yeah, if you have it good, you will be taking very, very good runs uh, on your fast or your echo uh, in the future. And um, that's uh, that's uh, that, that's what that's what we are debating, uh, or have been debating over the last year. So, right. Well. Um, for those who may have uh, missed the ultrasound uh, in training or, uh, you know, finished training before it came out, or those who are maybe in training programs now that maybe don't have a, a formal uh, curriculum for ultrasound, can either of you recommend resources out there for people who are interested in picking up this kind of training? Well, um, there's a lot of online modules 
um, quite frankly, YouTube has got a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, ultrasound, fast and uh, transthoracic echo, as well as abdominal uh, fast exam images that um, they have some teaching component to it. Um, I can't remember any of the names right now to, to link you to them, but um, I do know that you know, YouTube by itself has got a lot of uh, resources. There's actually an ultrasound, um, uh, 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 I'm going to say it's a curriculum, but uh, Stanford has got a, uh, it's been free to public access for a while. I'm assuming it still is, and I've looked at it several times. Uh, it has a lot of very, you know, cool kind of images and different types of pathology and sort of what anatomy, you know, normal anatomy, you know, transfixed with this abnormal anatomy. And, um, and there's, there's, so there's a lot of good mental jump and jacks that can be achieved. So I would say the Stanford Word Fighter or, or, or YouTube in general. Um, and uh, I know for uh, HTE, the, uh, the, the Amacor website actually has got a, they have a lot of um, education material. It's, 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 it's pretty solid. And um, we got, you know, we reference our residents to that website as well. And I would say that, I mean, they're more costly than, than YouTube or some of those, you know, free online sources, but um, Society of Critical Care Medicine has um, both self-directed learning, um, like the online module approach, um, and several live classes um, for hands-on approach to, to the use of ultrasound, specifically with echo. You know, now that you said that, I agree uh, totally. That's a good, that's a good call. And uh, the college is actually, American College of Surgeons has got, um, a, a course that uh, I, I believe that every Congress pops up that I've had a, a couple peers go to that have come out, you know, feeling much, much better about uh, their uh, understanding of, uh, you know, not just the fast exam, but um, transthoracic echo as well. And it's been our, at least our experience, we were talking about resident education earlier, that if the residents come up with no knowledge whatsoever, it's um, difficult to make much progress and what time we have with them. So I, I think that even, you know, if it is through online videos, you know, whatever is available, coming in with at least knowledge of the probes and of the different views and some of the terminology and what the machine looks like um, greatly enhances learning um, because hopefully if you do have the opportunity to be in a hands-on course, um, I would go in ready because um, I think you'll learn the most when you have the basics down and are able to just apply knowledge as opposed to starting from, you know, ground zero. It's, it's like anything else in surgery. The days of uh, showing up and practicing on a patient for the very first time are probably long gone. And, um, you know, the, we really do have the resources out there now that we really ought to be directing people to that so that they can practice in a, some sort of a sim lab or online or something before they ever ever get close to doing it for an actual patient. So, mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you both for participating today. It's been very enlightening. It's been stimulating for me. I feel like I uh, have a lot to learn about this area in, in general, so I appreciate your perspectives. Uh, thank you both for your time and your uh, dedication to this and uh, and helping to train the next generation. Many thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.